0: To the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter.
1: Episode 21, recorded on April 30th. The Cloud Pod exceeds quarterly listener expectations. Good afternoon on this final day of April. How's it going, everybody? Hey, going all right? Hey, Justin, how are you? It's going really well. It sounds like a little under the weather today, Peter.
2: Yeah, I hope it don't sound too stuffy, but
1: finally caught up to me. Great. Well, I do have a guest for us this week. Uh, I'd like to introduce Ian McKay, if you'd like to uh, say a few words. He's uh, coming live to us from the Amazon Summit in Sydney, Australia.
3: Hi, everyone. Ian McKay here. Uh, I come from uh, Sydney, Australia. Um, today, I'm at the Sydney Summit. Uh, we're recording this the day after uh, Innovation Day, but the day before the first day of Summit. So... Uh, it's pretty good so far. You get a bit of uh, robotics uh, action going on and some talks from some local businesses uh, that's doing cool stuff in cloud.
1: Awesome. Yeah, we had ours here in Santa Clara a few weeks ago and it was uh, it was always a good time as always. and uh, it's good to see you know a few announcements at some of these summits, and uh, it is only midway through summit season, so the summits are continuing in a big way. All right, let's get into a quick bit of follow up. Uh, So last week we talked about Apple and uh, Apple's usage of Amazon Web Services, apparently to the tune of 30 million a month. Um, reports came out after those articles broke that that's actually a reduction. Uh, apparently, in 2017, Apple spent $775 million in Amazon spend. And that's actually, they've cut it now in half. Uh, apparently, this is all driven by Apple's desire to reduce uh, their reliance on third-party vendors. Uh, and they're planning to spend over $10 billion in data centers over the next five years. So a pretty huge investment on them. So that's, you know, that $30 million a month is a chump change compared to the amount of money they're spending on data centers right now.
0: Wow, I wonder if they're going to move into um, into the hyperscaler space and start offering their own services. That's a lot of money to spend just for their own infrastructure.
2: I mean, it's probably what getting if it, if they're used if they're investing in actual data centers, they're amortizing that over twenty thirty years. If they're if it's just hardware, it's still five years, so probably shrinks pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, apparently there was an issue where they were providing data onto Google's uh, infrastructure, and they were told, uh, you know, that their data wasn't going to a certain data center. Then that data center apparently caught on fire, <laughs> and they found out that their data was not where it was supposed to be. So Apple, uh, you know, in their interest of uh, privacy, is definitely interested in reducing some of their resilience on on the cloud providers. But yeah, they still are hiring a lot of people in the cloud. They're hiring. So they're still doing a lot of investment there, but they're going to try to go for a really strong hybrid play that allows them to maintain their privacy requirements as well as their data sovereignty as needed.
2: I think they'd want to obviously own their own infrastructure to a certain degree, but also, um, you know, build that system where they could be zero trust with those partners and still leverage their services.
1: Yep. It'll be interesting to see what they do. And I would love for them to come out with a a cloud service to do things like iOS builds, Uh, because right now that's not something you can run on AWS or Google or anybody else. Um, iOS builds are very particular to Apple hardware. So I wouldn't mind being able to get that from a cloud provider. All right, let's move on to uh, the news this week. So the first uh, story out of the gate is Ford has apparently partnered with Amazon to build cloud service connected cars. Uh, this is a new cloud-based service uh, built by their partner Autonomic. Uh, and this will be hosting the Transparent Transportation Mobility Cloud. Uh, this is a system designed to be used by any brand of cars. It is agnostic uh, to allow them to handle telemetry, cloud image data, uh, communicate with each other, and just overall improve the autonomous vehicle industry. Uh, Andy Jassy said on this, the collaboration with Ford and Autonomic transforms the way automotive consumers and partners
0: develop connected vehicle cloud services. If you say so, <laughs> it seems like everybody's starting up a autonomous car business right now.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because Amazon also mentioned this. Uh, they did a partnership with VW uh, sometime a couple months back. I think we talked about it briefly on the show as well. So, you know, Amazon I think is just becoming the platform that all these companies are using for IoT and connected devices. And the legacy automakers are all excited about announcing partnerships with Amazon and this new platform that really has no adoption yet.
0: Since its partnership with Ford. Uh, they can going to write it in Rust. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
3: Very nice. <laughs> I think it's definitely a play that Amazon have been looking for for a while. They've had reference architectures for connected vehicle solutions for a while, and this is exactly what they wanted.
0: And now they've got the satellite infrastructure too. Well, they're going to launch the satellite infrastructure too, for um, uh, which could be the, um, the endpoint for all these ground stations. Wouldn't even need to rely on, on um, cellular data anymore, which right now is kind of a, a requirement for any of the autonomous vehicles.
1: Amazon has announced a new cost management blog. Uh, this, they posted their first Hello World post this week by Aaron Carlson, product marketing manager for AWS Billing and Cost Management. Uh, the first blog post uh, itself covers key organizational transformations that your organization will most likely go through, including adjusting to pay-as-you-go pricing, decentralized resource procurement, and breadth of functionality uh, of a cloud provider. Uh, you know, I think the big thing that was interesting to me about this post and why it's here and on the lightning round is actually the... The fact that Amazon continues to have costs as their biggest challenge with customers—it's the biggest complaint in the market—and so giving them a, themselves a soapbox to sign on and kind of talk about what they're doing and how they're trying to try and help customers can help counteract some of this negative press that they're seeing from people like Apple and Snapchat and Pinterest, who are spending tons of money on AWS. Uh, This now gives them a chance to maybe respond to some of that feedback or to educate the market further, which is an overall an area that I think Amazon, while they have great resources internally, they don't really talk publicly that often. And they've left that to people like Corey Quinn, who have added their own flavor of snark to the process, which is great. Uh, But, you know, Amazon really needed a more public face to class management. I think this is an interesting play by them.
2: It's obvious that, you know, seeing how lots of people use the AWS um, cloud infrastructure that... uh, the biggest problem is usually education, and people, you know, people who have, who are really upset with the pricing. It's not that I'm saying Amazon is the cheapest way to go all the time, but usually the big cost pain is doing things wrong on Amazon, um, and then this often misperception of the market that just because the numbers are big, uh, it means it's expensive on a per unit basis. So I just educate the market. Time to educate the market. Get people to use the platform more effectively. And also educate people on 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 you know the whole the whole model. I think it's great.
3: Yeah, I think Corey Quinn had a field day when this announcement came out. He goes on to say a lot about how people are using big analytical solutions just to read the costs in people's accounts, and some of the biggest uh, vendors uh, ISVs that are out there are cost management solutions. So it's probably a step in the right direction, but it's a long way to go there.
1: There's a new query for AWS regions, endpoints, and more using Amazon Systems Manager Parameter Store. Uh, this apparently was an ask by AWS customers to have a method to. Uh, Detect things like uh, regional endpoints, uh, available services in any given region, and an ability for their applications on launch to basically query this data through Parameter Store and use it to configure different services for their applications. So, uh, this is an interesting use of the Parameter Store beyond secrets and some of the other things that people do with certificates. Uh, But now you can query those Amazon services and know what environment that you're living in. Yeah, it's pulled my hair out so many times when you're doing automation and.
2: Endpoint names are a little bit inconsistent in convention between um, services. Uh, you know when you're referring to regions, what uh, what actual convention is used for that? Um, I I think this is awesome. I think it's going to make everyone's lives a lot easier from an automation standpoint. I was just surprised it's not just an a normal API call and that it is built. It's build built into the Systems Manager parameter store. I think anywhere is having this is a good thing.
1: I mean, I think it doesn't doesn't fit into the metadata service, which is why they thought about putting it into something like Parameter Store. But yeah, it is an interesting choice that it's not just an API.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think the SDKs have had uh, this feature for a while, uh, but it's not well known about, and it can quickly uh, become stale if you're running old versions of the SDKs.
1: Yeah, I don't think the SDKs though were dynamic either. I think they were very you know, they had the endpoints in their, da- in their data in the SDK, but they didn't necessarily know dynamically if they were changing. And this, this potentially allows the SDKs to get simpler too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It is weird that they didn't just make it a regular call. I mean, what do you have describe for, for so many other things? Why not just describe services? Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's bizarre. Maybe they just want to encourage um, more use of the parameter store.
1: Well, and I think it also, you know, in some cases, you mentioned a few episodes ago about the metadata service is somewhat, uh, doesn't have a lot of security to it. So for a customer who's really concerned, they maybe don't want to have the entire, um, you know, CLI or SDK installed on the system if they only need one parameter. So this is this is maybe a nice way to kind of get away from that overhead of a much larger deployment system. Or even if you think about containers, where you maybe don't want to have that CLI commands or SDK commands there. This is a nice option. So I see the use cases. I think it's it's still to be seen what people do with it, but I definitely think there's potential for it.
2: You know, I wonder if it's I wonder if it's because they see the potential for people to use this at a very high um, a very high rate. And they don't want people to get throttled with their standard API calls. And so by putting it in a parameter store, Amazon can charge for it, which means you could use as much as you would like, which is nice, actually, from my perspective, because nothing worse than having a service that you can't buy more of, like um, API calls.
1: Yeah, it's very true. Get away from API limits, too. That's a good good call out.
0: It's almost... Amazon's own metadata about their own services, so maybe they're going to expand the use of Parameter Store to to keep more information about their own services in there. I mean, maybe they can put uptime in there and uh, or service availability. I, th- I think I, th- I think we'll see more of this. I think this is a this is a sign that we're going to see more of more of this kind of thing.
2: Maybe maybe they can move tagging to Parameter Store. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. And, and I've, something I I've asked a, asked for a, a long time ago was um, the ability to like store metadata about my accounts in the account somewhere. I mean, you can't tag an account. Um, so maybe this is the maybe this is gonna be their the solution. Keep it yeah. in the parameter store.
1: Well and it definitely solves some of the confusion we were seeing too between systems manager parameters and secrets manager too. Like, you know, this is a much Much more robust service than just secrets, but it has a different use case, and potentially these secrets aren't secret. They're just things you need to know. Yep. All right. Well, it's uh, Peter's favorite time of the year. It's earnings season, (laughs) as usual, and we luckily uh, recorded this uh, in time for all three of them to announce their earnings before our next recording. So let's start with uh, Microsoft, uh, who started the earnings season this year. They uh, posted $30.6 billion in revenue powered by their cloud division. Uh, they rebounded from a rare revenue miss in Q2, exceeding Wall Street expectations for its third quarter. Uh, this revenues of $30.6, $30.6 billion is up 14% from the same quarter a year ago. And cloud revenue reportedly was up 22% to $9.7 billion, powered by 73% annual revenue growth in their cloud business. So that is big growth for the number two player in the cloud space.
2: I just can't help but wish we could see the Azure number instead of the cloud revenue number.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I wish it wasn't lumped in with Office 365 and server and a bunch of other stuff, but
0: yeah, real interesting. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the Cloud Pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn. The promise of cloud delivered.
1: Amazon revenue then uh, followed up Microsoft with uh, they're apparently approaching $8 billion uh, in Amazon revenue in the first quarter, up 41% compared to the prior quarter uh, last year. Uh, income was up $2.2 billion as well, up 55% from last year. And AWS growth basically represents a continued 40% increase uh, year over year. Uh, margins were steady thanks to improved efficiencies inside AWS data centers. CFO Brian Alsevetsky said, "Every percentage utilization gain in our data center is worth tens of millions of dollars." He said, "Very interesting money quote from their earnings." Wow,
0: that's a huge amount.
2: Yeah, and at that at that size of a business that they're still growing at forty percent um, annualizes, that's what it should look like. That's what a booming industry should look like.
1: Well, and if you think about the some of the statistics that were coming out a couple of weeks ago about the cloud market, they're saying they've only they've only Penetrated enterprise IT at ninety, you know, ten percent of the market. So there's still ninety percent of the market still left to be tapped into by these three players, and that's just a huge amount of growth that they all have still available to them.
2: And it's coming from somewhere. Where is it coming from? (laughs) So it's coming at somebody else's loss. I mean, (laughs) yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely someone else is uh, is impacted. Maybe we'll talk about them a little later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I know over the next couple of years with opening more data centers in um, more remote parts of the world as well, which I, I don't see Microsoft doing. They're going to soak up a bunch more business.
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. Microsoft has a lot more... Um, domestic regions than aws has uh and then of course alphabet uh finished up the earnings season on monday uh with a pretty uh, they had a lot of problems in their earnings they they don't break out cloud revenue so we won't be able to talk really about a lot of that um but basically they had slowing revenue growth uh, heading into this quarter uh profit of 6.6 billion or 950 a share uh, down from thirteen thirty-three a share a year ago. They did point out though that they did have a one point seven billion dollar EU fine uh, that reduced them from eleven $1, fifty a share to that nine fifty a share. Um, revenue rose seventeen percent, but was overall slower due to Google product changes, industry lull in ad and marketing spend, and changes in YouTube ad systems. Their other revenues, which does include the cloud, uh, did have a revenue rise of twenty five percent, up to five point five four five billion, um, and they. The CFO stated that the cloud is the third major driver of revenue growth behind mobile search ads and YouTube ads. Um, but analysts expected that to be 5.67 billion. So overall, they they definitely had a big miss. Uh cloud is also apparently leading to the overall company growth and headcount, both in engineering and in sales. So they're making large investments in both those areas to catch up. But uh not as great for Google or Alphabet company as uh as the other two, but you know, definitely still showing some growth in their cloud market, which is good.
2: And that that 5.45 billion billion is yeah other revenues i mean there's so much tied up and i'm dying to know what the real number is
1: oh i i assume it's some uh, you know half or a quarter of it actually because yeah. what's in that group but i mean that's i mean for being, you know only being in the market really as a serious contender to both aws and azure it's not mm-hmm. a bad bad place to be but they definitely need to pick up the pace which is why i think they have that growth in both engineering and sales headcount uh amd epic powered amazon ec2 t3a instances have been launched uh this is very similar to the current intel based t3 instances uh they are built on the nitro system they use the same burstable mode with reservation credits etc Uh, but with the amd processor you can save up to 10% uh,
0: on your monthly bill compared to the comparable intel uh, units. Who doesn't want a ten percent cut? I imagine there's going to be a huge demand for these things, especially as these T3s are the kind of instances that just get deployed by the hundreds in people's accounts.
1: I mean, I still, I still have an issue with the ten percent because again, you don't necessarily it doesn't necessarily represent equal performance. Um, you may actually see a degradation in performance greater than ten percent. So you still need to test your instances and really make sure that they. You know, they meet what you require. But, uh, you know, for teams that can use these T3s and they like the burstability of them, you know, that 10% may be a big number when you talk about the th- hundreds or thousands of these units you're deploying at any given time. So it's definitely, there's a market for it. I just don't know that it's exactly a 10% wash that you need to kind of do the math.
3: Just speaking of testing your instances, it's probably worth noting that a lot of these regions don't have full coverage for these T3A instances. So you might find that they're in, one or two of your three availability zones, so just what, something to watch out for.
1: Yeah, they're definitely being rolled out pretty slowly across the different regions, and you know, they, you're, if you're not in one of the main US regions, definitely uh, <laughs> check your console and your APIs
0: before you you move on to the uh, to using them. Uh, did the did the uh, parameter store contain this kind of information, or, or did they not go into AC2 uh, instance types? I never had services, but I didn't know if it was more detailed than just. Wow, that's a good
2: question.
1: Yeah. I think it did. I, if I remember in the examples, they showed that particular use case as an example. Oh,
2: okay. Yeah, that's hugely valuable, right? When we're yeah automating the spin-up of things in different regions but not knowing what instances are available.
0: Oh, that's cool. Okay, I can definitely see a use for this now, for the parameter store now.
2: Yeah, I mean, so many workloads are... You know, people are looking for the... I need a couple CPUs, I need X amount of RAM, and no one's doing any performance evaluation at all. They just need the box there. So I, I can see tons of people moving over uh, to the A instances and chopping their bill and, and probably not hearing a word from their um, their internal customers who requested the provisioning of the box.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the network performance on these T3 instances and it's even the T2s is not the best. And so I don't know anyone would, would actually use these things in production for any kind of heavy-duty workload. If, you know, so I don't know. Um, I'd be curious to see if anyone is actually using these things in production. I, I assumed that they were more a, um, a development phase kind of thing, and so who really who really cares about performance at that that level?
1: Well, your performance engineering team probably.
0: Does. <laughs> oh, and they they should be testing on the on the um, production configuration. Uh,
1: apparently, over in Ian's neck of the wood, we have a new Amazon region. The new Asia Pacific Hong Kong region is now open for business. This is the eighth region in Asia Pacific. Uh, With this launch, AWS now has over 64 availability zones within 21 global geographic regions. Uh, This is just one of many regions that's going online the next few years. We talked about Jakarta a few weeks ago, but there's still Bahrain coming, Cape Town, and Milan all on the docket to be launched the next few years. So, big growth in the data center space. Uh, It looks like most of the main services, the core EC2 services, are available to you, uh, except for Beanstalk, uh, Kubernetes, and X-Ray will be available sometime in the next month. Uh, And this is the very first region to utilize the new opt-in methodology for regions uh, we talked about a few weeks ago on the show. Um, This now basically requires you to enable the region in IAM. Uh, This apparently had some interesting side effects on the internet (laughs) as many people were complaining about their API calls that didn't expect Uh, to see, you know, basically these weird error messages were not being uh, handled properly. And so there's definitely some teething pains with the new APIs and the new IAM region stuff that may impact your scripts. So if you had something break uh, sometime in the last week uh, as they launch this region, it's probably tied maybe to this change in the APIs.
3: Yeah, I've had quite a few experiments with this. I think the initial activation time is about one to two hours in my experience, uh, and that's Uh, the service creating its own default VPCs and default security groups and that sort of thing. But to toggle off and on, that's a pretty instantaneous process after that point. Um, So it's interesting to see this new uh, methodology of uh, region activation coming in.
1: Yeah, hopefully they'll they'll kind of smooth it out a little bit so that in the future they, you know, it's now a known error condition and, it, and you make the error message actually say, you know, region not enabled versus failing in the really opaque ways it has failed. Uh, it's interesting, though, that, you know, it doesn't, you know, on the first time you end up provisioning up a bunch of uh, default settings. But then after that, it kind of reverts back to, you know, just toggle on off. I wonder why they didn't just choose to deploy those resources anyways and then toggle them off to fix that speed problem in the
0: initial launch. So does the Hong Kong region still sit behind the great Chinese firewall, or is it still um, considered uh, outside China?
3: No, it's considered a commercial region. So if you notice the actual short name of it, it's uh, AP East 1, I believe, and not CN South 1. So it kind of shows where they're
0: playing that sort of dice. Oh, that's a, that's interesting. I'm, su- I'm kind of surprised they're allowed to do that, actually. It's been a lot of years since China took control over of, over Hong Kong again. Um, well, excellent because I know a lot of people who've been been waiting for something in that um, region of the world. So this is kind of exciting.
1: All right. Slack uh, apparently has renegotiated its deal with Amazon uh, in 2018, but will still continue to spend about 212 million more with them through 2023. This all coming from the new S1 filing for Slack uh Slack disclosed it signed a new 5-year deal with AWS with annual commitment to spend a minimum of $50 million a year on cloud services uh Of course, the article said that they most likely did this to lock in discounting and pricing, which is an obvious reason to do this. And Slack is apparently all in on AWS and does not use other cloud providers. And more interestingly, they are a very U.S.-centric server presence, uh, not really using a lot of international regions, um, which I think would be somewhat of a problem for them tapping into European or Asian markets that require data for privacy reasons to be in that country. But uh, interesting things from the S1 filing. Uh, It's good to see these unicorns. You know, disclosing what their Amazon investments are and what they're doing in the cloud, I think it's, it's pretty interesting.
0: There's still time for we need to buy them. <laughs> There's still time. Microsoft could still swoop in.
1: They could. They did call out Microsoft as their, their biggest and only competitor yep. uh, in their S1 filing. I didn't notice that for you. But uh, I, I don't know if they, even if Microsoft wanted to buy them, I don't know that the Justice Department would let them if they're considered to be the biggest competitor. Hmm. We have to concede that point. It's not WebEx, huh? <laughs> there are other players who'd be interested in owning this technology, like Cisco um, in particular it comes to mind that you know it would be interesting. But so far, no, no acquires, Jonathan.
3: I think it's going public before it gets bought.
0: Is, is, is yeah. Slack as popular in Australia, Ian, as it is here in the US?
3: Incredibly. It's, it's so far out there. There's a very minor subset of people using uh, MS Teams, but Slack is the dominant provider here.
1: It was interesting to me, though, that in there, you know, in the S1, you find out that only 17% of the Slack workspaces that exist uh, are actually paid for, Um, which I feel like if they lowered their prices, they would probably get that number doubled or tripled, if not farther than that because the pricing is the biggest blocker for most enterprises to adopt slack it's it's ridiculously expensive for what it is and what you're getting and i, I wonder if they really thought that pricing model through like they could probably get way more volume and you would definitely lower their margins but they would they'd have way more volume and make it up there are you referring to the just the standard
2: slack um paid model or like enterprise pricing? all of them I don't mind the standard one. I, you know, for our company, we, I, I think it's one of the best bang for bucks we get out of a, um, a tool. I mean, if you add in all of the free users that you get, I think it's, I think it's pretty reasonable. I think the enterprise one I've heard it gets, gets pretty pricey, pretty quick.
1: It does. But, I mean, when you compare it to their biggest competitor before, which was HipChat, which was charging you $2 a user per month per year, and and now Microsoft Teams, which is free if you have an Office 365 subscription that you probably already have, it makes it a little bit harder to justify the cost of Slack in an organization like that. And I think the enterprise features that are very expensive are needed by a lot of security teams. Right. So I think it... It's definitely something I think they need to look at, but they're probably not going to. They have 70% of their market. They have revenues to support this model. But I definitely feel like they could make it up in margin if they lowered the price. Right. Uh, Docker Hub uh, apparently was exposed uh, in a breach. 190,000 accounts have been uh, leaked. They have reached out to you if you were impacted by the database uh, breach. And you should be changing your passwords and rolling your access keys as they cannot guarantee that those access keys were not compromised and or used uh, to build potentially uh, suspect containers. Uh, this is definitely something to be pretty take pretty seriously. Seriously, this happened on the 25th of April, and so if you have not yet changed your password, um, I would recommend strongly go do that as soon as possible. They did not get financial data, so any credit cards or anything you're using to handle your Docker Enterprise subscriptions, uh, but definitely all of your container builds, your
0: container build runtimes that are public, those were potentially exposed. And the worst thing about this is that potentially had access to your API keys um, for get, for GitHub for public uh, for, for your private GitHub repos. So if those keys were stolen, then potentially your uh, intellectual property could be stolen or at risk at least. So make sure to rotate the, um, the GitHub machine keys as well.
1: Microsoft also uh, did update on this as well. They, uh, they are indicating that their images on Docker Hub are safe if you're using them, the .NET Core or any of the Windows images. Um, but they did recommend that you still move over to Microsoft's new container registry. Uh, <laughs> they are only maintaining... They're only maintaining the Docker Hub images for backwards compatibility, but they have moved away from Docker Hub as their main deployment model. So it's something to keep in mind if you're using the Azure platform for your containers or things like that, uh, you might think about moving to MCR for this use case in the future.
3: I think it's a very scary thing. Uh, If I was a hacker, the first thing I would do is upload my own Ubuntu or Alpine image, which is just going to cover at least 50% of that uh, entire uh, market of Docker containers. And it's definitely going to spur that conversation about using MCR, ECR, GCR, and those private container registries um, more seriously.
1: Well, it definitely exposes something that I don't think a lot of people have really been thinking about, which is that if you're putting your, your Git credentials into a third-party SaaS and that gets compromised, now they have access to your source code. That's a risk factor that you know I think some companies have been thinking about and really talking about, but not all. And especially even in the case where, you know, they're using a GitHub enterprise on premise, uh, if they still have anything plumbed, to one of these public services that accesses GitHub, uh, that could
0: be a risk that definitely needs to be considered in the future. Yeah, and just think how many builds they do and just think how many, um, just think how quickly um, a compromised image could affect people globally. I mean, it's, it's pretty scary.
1: Uh, so yesterday at uh, Dell's annual user conference, which I didn't realize they had an annual user conference, uh, they have announced their new partnership between VMware and Microsoft Azure. Uh, this now this new deal allows involves the launch of software bundle dubbed Azure VMware Solutions. Uh, it includes four components: the vSphere hypervisor, vSAN storage management. The NSX Network Management and vCenter control tier. Uh, This is very similar to the partnership that was done by AWS several years ago um, with VMware. Uh, But the big interesting thing about this is that this was always seen as kind of the never going to happen solution because of Microsoft's uh, competitive product Hyper-V. Uh, which competes directly with the VMware stack. So this is Microsoft being the new Microsoft of the you know, Satya versus uh, Steve and being you know, willing to work with their partners and make the right solutions for their customers. Um, this partnership also includes a couple extra things, including uh, Horizon Cloud virtual desktops to be used with Windows Virtual Desktop Service from Azure, uh, as well as uh, Dell will be adding in Active Directory connectors for some of its Workspace ONE uh, suite of tools. Yeah, I mean, that whole concept of, um,
2: not giving the customers what they want, um, because it makes strategic sense for your business usually only works when your customers have no other options. Clearly, customers have other options. So this to me is a no-brainer and it's hugely valuable. I like see, uh, um, a lot of the customers who would, uh, who are considering and are integrating Azure, um, are all on VMware right now. Uh, you know, they are not all on Hyper-V. And and so this
1: could really accelerate that pickup of of Azure workloads. I I just still think it's interesting how much uh, the hyperscalers are getting into bed with VMware in general. I mean, I all these companies could destroy vmware so easily and <laughs> yeah now we're partnering with the enemy who is you know really holding us back from moving to public cloud in a big way it's it's of interesting but you know i definitely know some people who are using this technology and like it a lot i i don't i i would just rather replatform to cloud natively if it was me but
2: i just see it as a as a migration strategy so i can i can if there ends up being 15 percent of the stuff left in my data center um i don't have to keep my data center open just move it all close the data center, and then re-platform later.
1: I don't know. It's it's interesting choice, right? Because you're paying for VMware to basically deploy and maintain your VMs on cloud, which doesn't get your corporation moving towards cloud native. It doesn't get your culture better. Um, and then, you know, if you want to start, at least in the Amazon case, and I don't know how it's working on Azure, but in the Amazon case, if you want to access something like RDS or DynamoDB, you end up having to create a different account and then peer it to the, the VMware account. So it's while it is still very similar, you know, it is the cloud. It's not cloud native. It's not the culture of cloud. It's not any of the other benefits you get with it, and you're still paying VMware a ton of money to support it. I don't. I just, it's a, it's a tough one for me to see the value of.
0: Yeah, the lack of the metadata endpoint inside the VMs on AWS was just, just end, ends the, the, whole game really. Yeah. There's just no point
2: using it. That is pretty brutal. But you, you know, if you, if it's only for ten percent of your workloads and it allows you to close the doors in your data center. Um, it may be worth it.
0: I guess it's cheaper than signing up for a new twelve or twenty-four month lease with uh, you know CenturyLink or Equinix or somebody else. If it comes down to it, comes down to the, uh, the last few days of the lease and you didn't quite get everything out. Then, yeah.
2: I mean, even look at Amazon, right? How long did it take them to get off of Oracle?
0: <laughs>
2: it took them what ten years? Yeah. So, but that was just one tiny piece, right? So, I, yeah, I could see lots of workloads getting sort of stuck. But that, that VMware footprint becoming smaller and smaller as a percentage of your whole workload.
0: I'm sure VMware see this as great. We we can still get some revenue as people move to the, migrate to the cloud. It kind of extends the the life of the company a little bit. And AWS and Microsoft probably think of it more like the you know the gingerbread house you know, attracting the uh, Hansel and Gretel kind of thing. You know, <laughs> they uh, they get to eventually just take all VMware's customers. Because yeah. who wouldn't want them to
2: finally migrate away from the, the VMware platform? Right. Or it, or I'm sure VMware sees it as an opportunity to buy time while they finalize how they are going to add value in the space in the public cloud um, world that we're headed toward.
1: And our final news story for tonight is uh, Amazon DeepRacer Virtual Circuit is now open. So if you've been working on trying to get your DeepRacer trained up to try to go win those big prizes, uh, you can now do that virtually in the new DeepRacer console. Uh, You can build, train, and evaluate your reinforcement learning models online and compete online for some prizes. Uh, They will be adding a new track each month to make it interesting and to keep it competitive. Uh, And they're taking inspiration from racetracks around the globe. Uh, Each month, the top entrant in the leaderboard will get an expenses paid trip to reinvent 2019, where they'll take place in the league knockout rounds and have a chance to win the championship cup. Uh, This is now available in the U.S. East region only. I don't know if it's going to be extended out beyond that because it is just a training and uh, education tool. Uh, It did launch with six new tracks. uh, Well, five new tracks. The reInvent 2018 track, of course, which was launched then. Uh, The new London Loop track, Bowtie track, the Oval track, AWS track, and a new Straight track. Uh, This console is no charge, and if you're using it to start your training, you'll get 10 hours a month uh, for both SageMaker and RoboMaker uh, to help Build your models as credits. Cool. I'll uh, I, I I'll give it a shot when
2: they add the Top Gear track. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which one, the U.S. Top Gear or the no, 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 European no. Top the Gear? The
2: original, yeah.
1: All right, uh, Ian. Is there a, a deep racer track in Sydney this week?
3: Absolutely. I think there's two in Sydney this week. Um, I know a lot of the enterprises have their uh, even set up their own tracks. Within their, you know, banking lobbies or that sort of thing. So it's definitely something that, uh, particularly our region, is very interested in. And I would be surprised if the top leaderboard wasn't knocked off in uh, the next day or two.
1: Wow, that'd be pretty impressive. It's uh, definitely going to get more competitive now. That you can do all this training online and not wait for the summit. So, all right, Peter, let's go to the lightning round. All right. Uh, Starting it
2: off with AWS Single Sign-On now offering certificate customization to support your corporate policies.
1: I mean, how do you have a single sign-on solution that doesn't support custom certificates to do auth to other services? (laughs) Like it seems like such a miss for an MVP that this is now, you know, six months after the service launches, they're now releasing this. Amazon
2: EKS supports EC2A1 instances as public preview. I'm guessing you might have something to say about that, though, Jonathan.
0: That's great. <laughs> <laughs> the more ARM, the better, really. There you go. Yeah. I wish I hadn't called it A1. I think they could maybe discern a different name, or they, they shouldn't have c- confused it quite as much with the um, AMD Epic name oh. convention, but... Uh, it is
1: definitely confusing that the amds are lowercase a but the arms are uppercase a i don't quite understand that um i mean i i don't know that i want to add the complexity of eks to my arm deployments but you know I'm, so i'm sure someone out there wants to do this it just doesn't make sense to me
0: yep.
2: announcing azure backup support to move recovery service vaults what does this mean I don't understand this. You can move your recovery <laughs> service vaults like from one account to another or one region to another.
1: Mm. Okay.
2: DR seems like a good DR thing,
1: right? By the way, Ian, I don't know if you know, you're you can just try me with something quippy or a single comment, you know. This isn't really a Yeah, you are. Right. talking I, about in the
3: I, I will. It's just not these ones. <laughs> <laughs> I see.
0: It's not just me. <laughs>
1: But well, no, I, I just I realized that Peter didn't really explain the rules to our guest, <sighs> no, which, which put you at a disservice. And so I felt bad. And then I, that's why I jumped in. But if, it's, if you really don't have anything, then that's fine.
2: Yeah, the rules are speak up, say something. And then at the end, if somebody said something funny, they get a point. Um, I'll, although only one person gets a point. OK. Um, you can now optimize performance using Azure Database for Postgres recommendations.
1: The recommendation is move to SQL Server. Oh,
2: wow. <laughs> Amazon RDS now supports per second billing.
3: I just don't understand this. It's RDS is one of those services I really don't think is short-lived down to the sub-minute. So this, this announcement just doesn't make any sense to me.
1: I, I have two thoughts on it. One is, do I have to pay for the 25 minutes it takes to stand up the RDS instance? <laughs> and then number two... Ding. Who's the poor guy? Ding ding ding. Uh, who's the who's the poor guy who had to negotiate with Oracle the licensing at a per second level? Like that just sounds awful. Does it support all of them? It, so far, I believe it does. You'd imagine that
2: conversation in the in like the normal world uh, would be pretty easy. It's like, hey, we're going to divide the number of uh, seconds <laughs> we're going to divide the minutely cost by the number of seconds and, and be done with it.
0: But there's a 10-minute minimum charge when the instance is created. So maybe that's maybe that's what they're using to cover the, the spin up time.
2: Um. There you go. AWS Service Catalog announces tag updating. Tag, you're it. <laughs> AWS specifies the IP address ranges for Amazon DynamoDB endpoints.
1: So I have a public service announcement to all my friends out there in the Amazon world. If you have chosen to take your application and you have decided that you'd like it to publicly talk to an endpoint of DynamoDB on the internet i would really strongly look at your security practices and really take a hard look at yourself in the mirror and say is that really what you want to do because i'm not sure it is and i don't think it's a good idea to have ip addresses for DynamoDB endpoints on the internet that you're accessing from your apps on premise without a vpn in the middle just me i'm just putting it out there i don't recommend it
2: but if you're going to, it's good to whitelist. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not that it prevents anyone else from getting to it. Oh, but, you know, fine. hey, you're whitelisted.
2: Fine. <laughs> Efficiently scale ML and other compute workloads on NVIDIA's T4 GPU, now generally
1: available on Google's GCP. Well, they're a leader in machine learning. They should have it G8. Yeah. yeah.
3: Amazon have had this. Uh, known as in the works for quite some time, saying they'll support one to eight GPUs, but now they just have to play catch up with Google, especially with them pushing their Elastic Inference service, um, which allows them to map GPUs arbitrarily to instance types. But they definitely have to play catch up now.
0: Imagine how much it costs when they do something like this. Uh, the more the more regions they have, the more availability zones they have. It's um... Just just adding one one new, one new type of GPU or uh, no' the incremental cost to them it must be f- phenomenal. Or they're getting really good at it. If only they could like virtualize the GPUs. <laughs> yeah yeah really <laughs>
2: Yeah serverless automation using PowerShell preview uh, now for Azure functions, right
0: PowerShell for your Azure functions. So, it's in, pre- I, I, in, in preview today. It'll, I guarantee it'll be GA in two weeks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> For sure. I, I do like that Amazon beat them to this, though. And now they had to do this because Amazon did it first. Nice.
2: DynamoDB Mapper now supports Amazon DynamoDB pre- transactional API calls.
1: For all our Java friends, DynamoDB Mapper.
0: Yeah, I had to look that up, actually. I'm not a Java programmer.
1: I didn't actually know there was a Dynamo one, but there's a Mongo one, so it made sense to me. There's a Dynamo one. <laughs> well, there you go.
2: And now you can tag Amazon DynamoDB tables when you create them, and not wait until afterward.
0: This is so that you can support the um, the, the rule, the tagging enforcement rules to be we expected. We're going to have about another 152 of these announcements in the next couple of weeks, so I think.
1: Well, then we'll just yeah,
0: you know, <laughs> as we did,
1: for as we do for other things that are just repetitive. We just don't talk about it in lightning round. Yep.
2: AWS Systems Manager Parameter Store introduces
1: advanced parameters. Until you look at what they mean by advanced parameters and you realize they're not advanced. They're the same old parameters, just a tiny bit better. Just a tiny bit better. A little bit better. A little bit. bit. Just a little bit longer, really, is what they are. You can now do massively nested certificate chains if you really want to.
2: Speaking of Systems Manager, it also now supports use of Parameter Store at a higher API throughput.
3: I'm so happy with this. (laughs) This has broken so many things um, when you have parameter store that's backing things like CloudFormation. And these low rate limits will just, once you hit this limit, you're in this irrecoverable state of everything breaking. So finally, they're just letting us pay for it and fix the issue.
2: Isn't it so simple? Just pay for your API calls. When did it become so difficult?
1: This was an interesting one that someone else I know kind of gave me their use case why they were super happy about this which was that you know if you were launching thousands and thousands of containers using parameter store uh you wouldn't be able to get more than a few containers before it basically would stop functioning and i was like oh that that is actually a pretty good uh good reason to have this api limit increased for sure
2: azure accelerates supercomputing in the cloud with their
1: cray cluster store got to be careful with that one <laughs> I'm just excited that I can now, uh, in pure Jurassic Park form, I can now use the Cray Cluster Store to map the human, the DNA genome of a dinosaur, oh, nice. like the book. <laughs> That's the only reason. Anytime I see Cray, I think Jurassic Park. That's all I ever think about.
0: I thought it disappeared. Actually, I thought I thought Cray was um, long gone.
1: Oh uh, no, they're still around. They—I uh, don't know that they're as big as they used to be because all of the open-source HPC solutions off of Linux boxes kind of killed their mojo. But uh, they're still k- ticking around out there in some places. I remember I wrote to them,
0: oh, probably like in the in the mid mid eighties, maybe, and I said, "Hey, can you send me some promotional um, pictures and things?" Because you know, kind of like computers back then, I was kind of young. And uh, they the supercomputers. They look really nice. They got flashy lights and you know seats to sit on and all that kind of thing. And they sent me a truckload of posters that were so big I can barely fit them in in my uh, in my bedroom the kind of thing. You, the kind of stuff that you put on the side of a, uh, like a bus stop or uh, or that kind of thing is really really awesome. <laughs> I
1: remember the first one I ever saw in person was, I think, at Epcot and uh, in Florida, and it was a Cray supercomputer, and it used some type of water cooling that they basically piped out the front to make it look like a waterfall cascading down the front of the server. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of cool. Uh, but, you know, I, I I have a really soft spot for them. Like I mentioned, you know, the Jurassic Park was a big book for me as a kid. It really got me kind of started interesting in computing. So I have a, I have a soft spot for Cray. So I'm glad to see they're doing something, but I don't know what I would use it for.
2: Wait for 30 years from now when nobody knows how to use Cray and there's still like 25% of the huge uh, banks or someone are still using it. It's going to they're going to have a they're going to have a boon out of support replacement parts.
1: It makes you wonder if Azure is willing to support Cray. Will they be the first cloud provider to have a mainframe as a service? <laughs>
2: a oh chance. my god, they've
1: had a mainframe as a service for like 30 years.
2: <laughs> it's called a, it's called a, what's it called? A, main, a bureau service? Yeah, the, anyway, that is one of IBM's main services.
1: Will Hyperscaler do it? That's the bigger question that I can call with an API. There you
2: go. Interesting. That'll be yeah, that'll so. be cool. Schedule your <laughs> yeah. time on the mainframe. All right, we've, gone to
1: slow li- we've gone to slow lightning again. So.
2: AWS Security Token Service now supports enabling the global STS endpoint to issue session tokens compatible with all AWS regions.
1: It was so annoying to have to go get an STS token per region. If you're trying to do like test DR, different things, this, this simplifies a lot of use cases if you're using STS.
0: So now somebody... Issues Uh, if somebody steals one of your tokens, now they can spin up your Bitcoin miners in every region instead of just. Well, I mean, one. they
1: only last for eight hours at max. Mm, so, there's awful
0: lot of Bitcoins you can mine in eight hours. Well, no, <laughs> I
1: mean, uh, that's true, but you know, they could do it the old way too and get one region. So, I just yeah. see more convenience 99.9% of the
2: time and 0.1% of the time, more single points of failure.
0: I wish there was more visibility into the into the temporary tokens that get issued. Like, you, you could go to a console and list all the tokens that were currently active and currently issued. And when they were going to expire because right now somebody can issue issue a um a token and you have no idea and the only way to i mean it's it's pretty difficult to stop them from working once they've been issued
3: it's worth noting that they still recommend to use the regional sts endpoints for latency reasons i think a lot of people will just ignore that advice though yeah probably
1: i definitely wouldn't use it for my apps but i think for my use case what i need to do i would just use the global one because i don't care if it takes an extra couple seconds Let's finish up the lightning round.
2: AWS Elastic Fabric Adapter is now GA. All right. Uh, SQL Server wins it, Justin.
1: Awesome. Good yes, job. Victory's mine.
0: All right. Let's go on to the main event. All right. So today for Cool Tools, we have Ian Mackay. We previously talked about his... Um, oh, hell, what did we talk about before? Console recorder. That's right. We previously talked about the console recorder. And he's, he's um, in, here in person on the show today to talk about his new tool, a former two. Over to you, Ian.
3: So, Console Recorder came out, I think, in Episode 5 for you guys, um, and you guys talked about it, and I got a lot of great feedback from you, and I got a lot of good feedback from the community around it as well. Um, it was a really interesting experiment into new ways of doing infrastructure as code. One of the big pieces of feedback that I got is that are other developers aren't using the recorder, or they forget to record, or they're doing lots of different iterations on it, they just don't want to record every single thing. So can you do this for existing resources? And because of the way console recorder worked where it was recording your network traffic, that was just not a thing. It was a purely passive tool. So I started to look into what things were out there and um, the AWS formal tool um, was out there and it was made back in 2011. Uh, and I had a look at it again, and it doesn't seem like it's changed one single bit. Yeah, <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> yeah, it's still outputs. Because no one used it. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, that's true.
3: still outputs in JSON. It still requires an instance spun up in the account. And yeah, that's, it's, it's a very depressing thing. So I decided that I'll jump in and make this new product called Forma 2. And what Forma 2 does, it allows you to select from the existing resources in your account And it runs completely in the browser and uses the uh, API endpoints just to query it through the JavaScript SDK. Um, So right now it supports 100% of the CloudFormation types minus a couple of exceptions. Um, Same for Troposphere and the CDK primitives. And about halfway through doing the Terraform types as well. Um, Has a lot of cool features. has the uh, intrinsic function support. So it can ref or get attribute or sub from previous selected resources in the template and you can search the entire account by keyword as well. So if you scan the entire account and you just say, I want my dev app or something similar to that, I can select from all of them and add it directly into a,
0: a template. Very cool. We had to play with it. Yeah, it's awesome. You must put a lot of work into that.
3: Yeah, it's. I think Console Recorder took me about four months to do um, because every single uh API core, every single transaction is manually mapped. Um, doing it again, I halved that time. I got this done in two months. Nice. Um, you get a lot of lessons learned from the original time you do this. So, um, yeah, and it's it's fun. It's a much more traditional way of doing it. Like the the SDKs calls don't change, but the console changes all the time. So it feels like a much more stable way of doing it.
2: I love the output. I I, um, I used. Uh, CloudFormer was like the first thing I did when I started using AWS and wanted to learn about CloudFormation. And it was so painful um, both to use it as well as uh, I, I didn't like the output it gave. Uh, and this this I could imagine using almost as simply a shortcut to, uh, um, to learning and, and prepping, if, even if I'm writing my own stuff from scratch, uh, almost like a super, super quick templater. I love the output. It's, and the interface is so fast. Everything just works really smooth. I love it.
0: Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. The original CloudForm was horrendous. Even, even if you just had a few resources in your account, it's like they deliberately obfuscated the output. You know, the resource names were just crazy. And um, th- this is really, really nice. And I, I totally agree. I would almost be tempted to, to start using the console to create things, do things just so I could not have to type HCL or some, or CloudFormation um, manually. So, what's what would be involved in um, like having extra output support for this? Like, do you have some kind of like internal model of of these resources?
3: Every single resource um, comes out as a, a track resource, uh, and that can have um, a bunch of uh, internal identifiers and uh, sort of a property map of each individual one. So, uh, what the property map is for. Uh, CloudFormation is obviously not the one for Terraform, but I can just add these as we go. And it's similar to the same way we did uh, console recorder as well. Um, Same thing for the the return values as well. So the ref and the get attribute um, identifiers are all different as well. So they have their own individual maps. What's next? (laughs) Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the biggest issues I had with this, um, and I was very surprised by it, is this cause problem. Um, You'll notice if you start to use Former 2, one of the first things it does is to um, prompt you to use this, to install a small browser extension. And the reason for that is that more than 50% of the service endpoints in Amazon, so that's like S3 or AWS or things like that, doesn't actually have core support. Um, so natively, a website cannot call out to the service endpoints uh, and be allowed to do that within a browser context. I was super surprised by this. So I had to create this sort of browser extension to bypass that limitation, um, which is unfortunate because I, d- I did want this to have a native experience. You can use it without the browser extension. You're just not going to have the full service coverage. And there's important ones in there like S3 and IAM that just doesn't
0: have that support. That was uh, like the irony of S3. Not having, probably one of the biggest web servers in the world, <laughs> not supporting cores. Yes, it's insane. <laughs> yeah, well, at least the API for not supporting cores, yeah. yeah. It seems, it seems and the, kind of the
3: big problem with this is that because each service team is individual, if you want to fix this problem, you have to raise 100 PFRs or service requests.
1: And then try to get them prioritized by the product management <laughs> yeah. and
0: everything else. So good luck to you on that. Yeah. So we should get everybody listening to raise a PFR. F- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one each.
1: Yep. Oh, God. What made you choose CloudFormation, Terraform, and Troposphere? I mean, CloudFormation is kind of obvious, but why, why Terraform and Troposphere? And have you had requests for others
3: uh, at this point? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's really hard to gauge the market as for which DSLs are most popular. Like, I think CloudFormation is definitely a first, and Terraform is definitely second at this point. Although people would argue that one. Um, Terraform has had a massive boost, in my opinion, in the last twelve months, just because of this resource coverage and the flexibility of their dsl troposphere has always been around and i think that's it's less used but it's one of those more i guess easier to map um, outputs as well um, and cdk support for the typescript um, cloud primitives is in here as well uh, i just don't advertise that fact because it's very um, it's pretty fresh so i'm not fully tested with it yet but um it should work.
1: It'd be interesting to see if you could, you know, start using this for like whatever Azure's uh language is and Google's language, you know, whatever their version of CloudFormation is, which I don't know the name on top of my head, but um it'd be interesting to see, you know, kinda of like, oh, here's how you do it in EC two versus how you do it in Azure. I can see that'd be kinda of interesting too, but
3: uh Yeah, I've had i I've had a couple you know. of requests for that. Um it's it because of how hard it is just to do one, it's to do another another two on top of that is uh it's a huge challenge. And I think they already have some tooling around it. Um, mm-hmm. one of the, one of the feedbacks, uh, that the community came back with on console record is that Azure and Google have been doing this, um, perform this action as a code in their console forever. And Amazon has never done it. So they always had that advantage of, I just perform this action. By the way, here is your, uh, CLI call or SDK call to do that same thing. And Amazon's never had that. Um, But this is something a bit different. This is scanning your account for existing resources and uh, then generating the the infrastructure as code for that.
1: I can see this getting a lot of people, you know, who are trying to move to Terraform or trying to move to CloudFormation. Like this is a nice quick start. Like here's how it works. And
3: there's quite a few use cases around like people that have started in the console and now moving into infrastructure as code, getting that easy migration path in is, is really good. And like you said, this it's a really good education tool as well.
1: Do you see this as becoming something you're gonna do full time in the future or is there a team already that's working with you to do this or you know, what's kind of your thoughts on how do you keep this maintained over time? Because I think that was one of our comments about the console recorder is, you know, it's it's really great and it's awesome. But, you know, do you have the motivation as a single person to continue to modify it as they add new services? And that's always a risk of any of these type of tools is, you know, how do you continue to maintain them as Amazon, you know, launches another 35 services at reInvent next year? It's
3: always a bit of a challenge. Um, I think Forma 2 is significantly easier to maintain because there is well-documented SDK calls that can associate with this. Um, and to get this far in you know a relatively short amount of time uh, and to keep up with you know a few resources being added is not too hard in my opinion. Um, my question is going to be, how can I maintain console recorder, which is going to have a lot of arbitrary stuff in the request that needed to figure out what that means, like reverse engineering, Google Web Toolkit's wire request. But this, this is something I'm doing in my spare time um, I've got no one else actually working on it, but there are a couple of um, helpful community members that have done a couple of uh, pull requests and issue raising, and I do appreciate that a lot.
0: Yeah, open source format too, or just console recorder?
3: Uh, Yeah, both of them are open source. Both of them are on GitHub. Console recorder being an extension. You can just run it and download it and modify it as you need to. Um, Formal 2 was also designed in that way. So you can clone the repo, host it locally and run that as that is, um, which should alleviate a lot of the security questions that people ask.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that. If, if, if you would had people complaining about you know, pasting tokens in that kind of thing.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely one of the top comments every time we talk about this sort of thing. So it's about as good as I'm gonna get regarding the security issues behind it is that I can have it such that you can host it locally and interpret, inspect the code, and you can determine for yourself whether you want to use the service or not, even locally.
0: How's it deployed right now? I assume it's running in AWS.
3: Yeah, yeah. It, uh, when I demo this, I actually use Former2 to show off how I could CloudFormation my Former2 resources. So that's <laughs> an interesting piece of dog food. Um, but yeah, awesome. it's, ba- it, it's basically just S3 bucket with an OAI to CloudFront. So it's pretty simple stuff.
1: Uh, What can our listeners do to help you other than, you know, making pull requests and and is there anything else you need to get this kind of going Is something bigger?
3: All all the feedback and all the feature requests are the best thing I can possibly get at the moment. Um, Any bug reports and that sort of thing is something that is super helpful. Um, I had a a request to add GovCloud yesterday, which I, I could quickly add, but it's just one of those things that I can't actually test. Because I don't have access to that region, so <laughs> I can add it, but you you got test it for me. So it's just that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, it's really fantastic, and you know, I I find it funny because I think um, many years ago I talked to someone at AWS about former and how garbage it was, and are they doing anything to get better? And they make it sound like it's this really super complicated thing to do, and you just showed them that you know you can do it.
3: Yeah, I know that when former two was out, there's a lot of talk internally about how this was. Um, created and what can they, can they do internally. Um, I heard from developer advocates that there were internal projects to do similar sort of things, but it just never got off the ground.
1: Well, I think uh, that wraps up today's episode. How do they uh, follow you on the internet, Ian, if they want to reach out to you on Twitter and thank you for the tool, or uh, I know they can go to your GitHub and put an issue in if there's a bug.
3: Yep, so I'm on Twitter. Um, the username is IANN0036. Um, same thing for GitHub. Uh, and those are the two platforms I'm usually on. Um, but yeah, any pull requests, any bug requests, um, or even just hit me up on Twitter, and all that is very much appreciated.
1: Fantastic. We, uh, we're definitely going to be playing with this a lot. Really an awesome tool. And I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk to us about it and you know, happy to support your launch of Former 2. Nice work. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe today on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag theCloudPod.